Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful that you give us uh, a day of the week to set aside, to come together as your people, to enjoy you, to enjoy one another, and to enjoy your word and your grace. Lord, pray that you would teach us today. Grow us in grace. Help us to rejoice in the God who is with us and working on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you could please open to the book of Esther, uh, chapter 1. It is page 410 in the Red Bible, page 410. Uh, Today we are starting our fall sermon series. And uh, before we dive into the book of Esther, I want to give some background. Uh, The first thing that I want you to know is that in the Bible there are different genres of Scripture. And so we were just in 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians is didactic teaching in which Paul is giving instructions and telling the truth about who God is and how we are to function in the world. And so he teaches us things. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, he teaches us how the Lord's Supper should be performed, how we should participate in it, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, he teaches us about love, what love is like, and it's didactic teaching. When we get to the book of Esther, the book of Esther is not didactic teaching, it is narrative. It is a story. It is historically true story. And in story format, God teaches us a lot. He teaches us about humanity. He teaches us a lot about ourselves. And he teaches us a lot about him. And so he does this through this story format. Now, as we dive into the story, the historically true story of Esther, we also need to get a glimpse of the bigger story. Okay, and where Esther fits in this bigger story uh, of God's story. Okay, and so you'll see in your bulletin, and if you're online, you can I can email you this if you want, but you might want to take notes. Um, there's kind of a chronology of the history of the Old Testament. And let me just say, this is helpful for you to keep maybe in your Bible as a bookmark um, so that as you read through scripture, you can kind of figure out, okay, where does this lie within the bigger context of God's story in the Old Testament? And so I wanna walk through that to help set the stage for the book of Esther. So this is the bigger story. So we'll start in 2100 BC. We could go back further to creation, but we'll start in 2100 BC in which God... Uh, makes promises to a man named Abram. And God gives three promises to him. And to help you remember it, uh, they start with the letter P. He promises them a presence, a people, and a property. Okay, presence, people, property. And I just want to walk through that quickly. First, God promises his presence. God says to Abraham that he will be with him and with his descendants forever. Now, we are descendants of Abraham, those who trust in Christ. Galatians 3 tells us this. It says, for that we know that those of faith, not by genealogy, but by faith, 
who are the sons of Abraham. And so God promises his presence with Abraham and with his descendants, of which we are by faith if we trust in Christ. God also promises a people. So when God appears to Abraham, or Abram, before he becomes Abraham, uh, uh, Abram does is old, his wife is old, she is barren, she has not produced any children. And yet God comes and promises that from them will come a great nation of people. And it almost seems ridiculous to think about it because she's older and has not had any children. Well, it goes several years before God uh, delivers on this promise and they're doubting him. But, but when Sarah is at the ripe age of 90, when she is post-menopausal, uh, Abraham is 100 years old. The book of Hebrews says his body was as good as dead, which is not the most flattering statement ever said of someone in scripture. But, but there was no chance they could have a baby, but they had a baby and his name was Isaac. And Isaac had a child named Jacob, all right? Jacob was renamed by God Israel, all right? So I know there's a lot of information here, but hopefully it's helpful in thinking through um, the Old Testament, but also uh, how this works. Uh, but, but Jacob, also named Israel, had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? We'll pick up that a little bit later in the timeline. So he promises him his presence, a people, and finally a property. Uh, he promises him a land flowing with milk and honey. Geographically, it's what we know as Israel today. But that pointed to a greater promised land that is to come. Uh, Hebrews 11 says, For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, talking about heaven. Okay? And so in 2100 BC, God appears to Abram and makes these promises of a people, a property, and a presence. Now, the story of the Old Testament unfolds, um, and all of these, pr these promises are kind of a grid work to see the Old Testament. So 1800 BC, uh, Abraham's descendants, uh, known as Israel, moved to Egypt. And the original reason why they did this is because there was a famine in the promised land. And so they wanted to go and get food and eat, which is a good, good reason to go. And as they get there, what they find out is that one of the sons of Israel named Joseph had been promoted to the second leading man in, in all the country, really all the world. And so his name is Joseph. And so Joseph gave him a great plot of land. And on that plot of land, they grew, they multiplied tremendously, so much so that, that Egypt was intimidated by them and started to oppress them and enslave them. Well, when we get to 1446 BC, there is an exodus from Egypt. God delivers his people out of slavery and oppression in order to bring them back into the promised property, the promised land. Now, because of their rebellion uh, and idolatry, it takes them 40 years uh, to go from Egypt to the promised land. But during those 40 years, God gives them a warning. And this is important for us to understand the context of the book, context of, the book of Esther. Uh, God warns them, he says, if you will not listen to me, if you walk contrary to me, he says, I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And then he says, and I will scatter you among the nations. I will scatter you among the nations. You see, we have a God who is a jealous God for his people. This is pretty flattering. I mean, some people find it offensive, but that God is jealous for us and for our hearts. And like any good groom, he does not want to share his bride with another. And so he says, listen, worship me, obey me, follow me as your Lord, and don't follow any other. But if you do, here's a warning that I will scatter you among the nations. 
Well, in 1050 BC, after God had done all these things for them, the people started to drift from God. They reject God as king, and they said they want a king like all the other nations, meaning they want a human king. And so in 1050 BC, there's establishment of a human kingdom over Israel. And God gives them what they want, exactly what they want to their own detriment. They give them a king like the other nations, King Saul. And Saul deteriorated spiritually very quickly, and it led to a lot of heartache within the kingdom. Uh, his son David, repla- uh, not his son, sorry, David replaced him and had a 40-year reign. And while David was a great sinner, uh, David was even a great repenter as well. And he was known as a man after God's own heart. Um, after David came his son Solomon. Solomon, you may know, was known for his wisdom. He was a brilliant man, the wisest man in the world. But he had a wandering eye. And so he started to marry women, uh, many women from many different nations uh, who worship many different gods. And he was wooed by them to worship these other gods as well. And because of that, in 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel is divided. Are you hanging with me? I know it's a lot of information, but hopefully it's helpful for you. Um, So the kingdom of Israel is divided and you have the northern kingdom and that northern kingdom is called Israel. It makes it even a little bit more confusing, but that's called Israel. And then you have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, all right? And in the northern kingdom, um, there are 13 kings. And there's actually a, a, a uh, question for ordination that they'll ask is, name all the good kings of Israel, the northern, the northern kingdom. And it's a trick question because there were no good kings. They were all really bad kings. They all chased after idols and, uh, and led the people to abandon the Lord. And so the Lord came to them with through hundreds of years of patience, warning them, calling them through prophets to repent and return to the Lord. Hundreds of years he's doing this, and yet they refuse to return to the Lord. And so in 722 BC, he carries out his promise and he brings destruction on the northern kingdom, which again is called Israel. And they're defeated by the Assyrians and they're forced to intermarry and they're scattered throughout that empire. Now the southern kingdom, uh, which is called Judah, Uh, was also uh, struggled with idolatry, uh, but there were some highs and lows. It wasn't just a steep decline. And so they lasted a little while longer. And again, God sent prophets to Judah saying, listen, stop chasing other gods. Return to me. I am the Lord. I am your God. But finally, in 586, um, after just complete rebellion, there was destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. And it came at the hands of the Babylonians. And the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed. It was completely undone, okay? And then they're led on this, this, this campaign, which is similar to the Trail of Tears. I think we, wow, that fills the whole screen, doesn't it? So here we see it. And my la- I was so excited to use my laser pointer. And my laser pointer is not charged, so I'm frustrated. But, but you'll see there's Jerusalem. And if you follow the black line, you'll see that it leads over to Babylon eventually. That's about 500 miles. And then if you see on the far right is Susa, which is probably another two or 300 miles to there. Uh, but that's where they were exiled to, to that area and really throughout the whole Babylonian empire. But far far away from Jerusalem, okay? Now, while the, the Babylonians uh, have them captive, uh, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, all right? The Medo-Persian Empire. We read about this in Daniel chapter 5. And the Medo-Persian Empire, oh, we get the laser pointer back. Yay! All right, we'll see how long it lasts. So there's another map coming, so I'll get to use it then. Um, And in 538, there's a decree of Cyrus 
allowing Jews to return and rebuild the temple. So a few few years later, Zerubbabel returns with about 50,000 Jews, which is just a small remnant of the Jewish people. And against opposition, it takes them 20 years, they rebuild the temple, all right? So then that brings us to the book of Esther, 478 to 474 BC. And at this point, during the book of Esther, people are spread all over the Persian Empire. Uh, There is a remnant that is back in Jerusalem in that area, but there's not many. Uh, It's important to know that at this time, the walls of Jerusalem are not rebuilt, so it's not a safe place to be. It would be as if your home had no front door and couldn't have a front door. It wouldn't be a safe place to be. People and predators could wander in and out. And so they had no wall. Not only did they have no wall, but they had no temple worship at the time, which was really central for them. That wouldn't come until many years later, but they didn't know that. And so here it is, okay? So let's step back. So here you have the people of God scattered throughout the world, okay? And they're wondering, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Where is the God who parted the Red Sea? Where is the God who triumphed over the mighty Egyptians? Where is the God who pushed the people out of the promised land to make room for his people? Where is God? Did he forget his people? Did God give up on his people? Did they outsin God's grace? Has he reneged on his promises to his people? This is the biggest, bigger story, the backstory, the story of Esther. And I think it's important for us to understand it because I think many of us are asking the same questions of God today that the people were asking in the time of Esther. I'm 42-year-olds-ish, always plus or minus year because I forget how old I am. And for me, in my small little world, in the small little time frame of 42 years, this is the most contentious time I've ever lived in my life that I can think of. Uh, It's amazing just how frustrated people are, how angry people are, how hurting and scared and exhausted and lonely people are. And as a result, they're lashing out at people all around them, including in the church. And so we ask God, where are you in the midst of the chaos of the world that is going on right now? Maybe this resonates for you at a more personal level. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe your kids have abandoned the faith that you sought to raise them in. Maybe you're wondering how you can pay the bills. Maybe you're, you're, you're dealing with chronic pain and you're wondering, Lord, where are you? Where is the God who healed the lame and made the blind see? Where is the God that raised Jesus from the dead? Lord, where are you? What the book of Esther will show us is that even when God seems absent, He is always at work, even in the midst of a chaotic world, rescuing his people, fulfilling his promises, and accomplishing his purposes. And so this is the bigger story. This is the context of the book of Esther. And and Esther takes place in Susa, if you remember, which was far right of the map, which is not Jerusalem. It is in the heart of Babylon, okay? So that's, that's the backstory. Now up to the current story, which is really the story of Esther, okay? It's not today's story. I probably misnamed that, but the Esther story, okay? And in Esther chapter one, it focuses us on a particular person. Surprisingly, it's not Esther, uh, nor is it Mordecai, nor is it even the Jews. But Esther chapter one starts by focusing on the character of the king, 
King Ahasuerus, okay? And chapter one really lays out for us and helps us understand who this king is and how it affects the empire that Esther is a part of, all right? So it starts by showing us the glory of the king. So let's look at verse one together. And we'll look verse one through verse eight. It says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Okay, let's pause there for a second. So King Ahasuerus is better known by his Greek name, which is King Xerxes I. And he ruled the Medo-Persian Empire for over 20 years from 486 to 464 BC. And he was easily the most powerful man in the entire world. Easily, okay? He ruled over 127 provinces. And I think we have a map here. Again, another map. Do we? No? There it is. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. And you can see it extends from the western part of India all the way into northern Africa, all the way to the eastern part of Europe, okay? Jerusalem is right in there. And then, um, and then, let's see, Susa is right over here. And Susa is where this story takes place. Again, in the heart of the Persian Empire. To go from Jerusalem there, you have to actually go up and around. And so it took quite a long time to get there. So it's right in the heart of the Babylonian Empire. And it calls it a citadel because it's a fortified city. Okay? And so, 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 so the king Ahasuerus uh, is the most powerful man in the world. He has the biggest empire in the world. All right? Verse 3 continues. It says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all the officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So if you want to get a picture of what this celebration was like, think of it as a world's fair. Um, World's fairs usually last about 180 days, and so about the same time frame. And one of the purposes of the World's Fair is to show out, show off the glory of the host country, to show how wonderful the country is. You can think of it even as the Olympics, right? In the Olympics, a lot of times what they're doing is they're showing the beauty and the glory of that host country. Uh, for a World's Fair, they would build amazing things to, to show their glory. Like, for example, 1889, they built the Eiffel Tower for the World's Fair in Paris, uh, in 1962, the World's Fair in Seattle, they built the Space Needle and the monorail in order to kind of show off their, their glorious architecture. And so this is what King Ahasuerus is doing, is that he is showing off uh, all of their glory, okay? Um, just so you know, just a note, if I say King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, I'm talking about the same person, just so you know. So sorry if it's confusing, but... Um, King Xerxes is easier to say. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, the question is, as, as the king has his 180-day feast, um, why does he do this? I mean, it's very expensive to do. It costs him a lot of money. Why have this 180-day feast? Well, verse 4 tells us very clearly why he does it. He does this to show off the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. You see, King Xerxes was the most glorious king on all the earth, and he wanted to make sure everybody knew it, okay? Verse 5 says, And when these days were completed, the 180 days, the king gave for all the people 
present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Okay, so this is kind of the grand finale of the 180-day festival. It's like Thanksgiving for a week, all right, which... I could not imagine that, but it's like Thanksgiving for a week. Verse 6, he says, There were white cotton curtains and violet violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. So what it's telling us is that he did more than add shiplap to his kingdom, okay? He took the most precious materials throughout the entire world and made them his floor. <laughs> so, so this is extravagant. This is a place you don't want to go with your kids because you're like, don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. It's extravagant, okay? The most, probably the most extravagant place in the entire world. Verse 7 says, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So normally during a feast, you would only drink when the king drinks. But here he's saying, listen, they can drink as much of the royal wine, which is the best wine, as they want in this seven-day span. And again, why is he doing it? Verse 4 tells us to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. And the people ate it up, both figuratively and literally. They ate up his glory. But here's the thing. What we find out in this passage and what has been shown throughout human history is that no matter how powerful any king or emperor or politician may be, if you dig below the surface, there's going to be problems. And that's what we see here with King Xerxes as he is rejected. In this passage, verse 9 says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Evidently, only the boys were invited to King Ahasuerus' party. Verse 10 On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Some commentators think it's saying with only her royal crown on. In order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Queen Vashti was the definition of a trophy wife. She was gorgeous. And one way that he could impress the boys was to show the boys how beautiful the queen was. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. It's so interesting because the king had the fear and the respect and the admiration of the entire world, of all the princes and all the kingdoms. He had their admiration, but he didn't have the admiration of his own wife. I'm wondering uh, if there is any men who might resonate with this today. You know, um, let me back up. Abraham Kuyper says, he's a great theologian, he says, you know, Vashti is one of the nobler women of humanity. 
I, I hear many men who will say, you know what, um, I feel this. This happens to me. I'm respected in my workplace. I'm respected in my neighborhood. I'm respected in my church. But when I go home, I'm not respected at all. And there's this tension. And the question is, what do you do with that tension? Well, we see here what the king does. Verse 12 says, and this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. You know, I don't know if you've seen images of the wildfires out west, but it's horrible to see. My wife showed me yesterday a picture of a fire tornado, and she said, it looks like the end of the world. It's horrific, and it's uncontrollable as much as they're trying to control it. You see this fire of anger burned with inside the king, not only because his wife said no to his demands to objectify her, but also because he was humiliated in front of all of these people. Remember, what was the purpose of him throwing this feast? To show his glory and show his power. In one word, no, the queen undermines all of that. And he is furious. You see, what he could do from here is that he could go to his wife that he could seek to be reconciled to his wife, that he could repent to his wife and ask for her forgiveness. But he burns with anger. And so he lashes out. And I think that's often what men do today. When, when, when your wife doesn't quite say exactly what you want her to say and she's undermining the glory that you're so carefully constructing instead of going to her with love and gentleness, you burn with anger. And so here's what we see so far. The glory of the king, powerful, rich. We see the rejection of the king by his wife. Finally, we see the vengeance of the king. Again, remember, the king could have gone to his wife, talked to her, right? Been reconciled to, with her. But his ego was too big and his anger was too consuming. Verse 13 says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face, right? They saw that he was angry and sat first in the kingdom. So these are the king's closest men, right? These are his guys. These are his, quote, wise men. I will put it in quotes because they are not the wisest of the wise men. Verse 15 continues, says, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Okay? They know the king is furious, but more than that, what we see is that these wise men are also furious and they are scared. Verse 16. Then Memukin said to the, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the province of King Ahasuerus. They just exponentially explode the issue that just happened. It could have been small. King could have gone to, to the queen. But, but instead they said she has, she has done wrong against everyone. Now why do they say that? Verse 17. For the queen's behavior will be known to all women. Uh-oh. <laughs> Causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Uh-oh. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. 
This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be content and wrath in plenty. And so basically, they're building this argument that they need to make an example out of Queen Vashti. That we need to make sure that the kingdom know, that the women know, that they cannot say no to their husbands. That we need to suppress them. That we need to keep them under our thumb. That we need to keep them voiceless and powerless. And so it continues. Verse 19 says, If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Ironically, this is probably exactly what Queen Vashti wanted. Verse 20. So when the decree, uh, I'm sorry, let me finish verse 19. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. In other words, someone who will do whatever the king says she should do. Verse 20, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And so in theory, this command of of wives honoring your husband, it's not a bad command. It's a good command. It's a biblical command. But we know that in this context, it means wives are not allowed to say no to their husbands. And it is an oppressive command. And so you see just sexism being legislated from the top as his anger is spilling over. Verse 21. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. In other words, translate it in a way that every woman will be able to understand this. The king should have pursued the hard work of reconciliation, but instead he divorces his wife and moves on. And at the advice of his, quote, wise men, empowers a culture of sexism throughout the empire. Now, it's important to see this because this is the context that the rest of the story is going to take place, a context that is very oppressive to women. We read of a king who is the most powerful man in the world, A king that loves to display his greatness and glory to others. A king who is respected and feared by everyone except his wife. A king who is insecure and angry and sexist. Along with the wise men, a king who issues a decree to all women to be slaves to their husband. This is a desperate and seemingly hopeless situation for the Jews. Who are basically the refuse of the empire. This is the beginning of the story of Esther, the story within the bigger story that we talked about earlier. And what we're going to see is that this story in Esther does not end in Esther, but by God's grace continues even up to today. It is an internal story that lasts forever with a happy eternal ending. And so let's focus on the end of this story here. You see, the million-dollar question with Esther chapter, the hard part about preaching Esther chapter 1 is there's nothing redemptive in the chapter at all. Uh, uh, Esther's not mentioned. The Jews are not mentioned. Mordecai's not mentioned. And so the question is, why does God start by describing the king? Why does he describe 
the greatness of the king, the glory of the king, but also the horribleness of the king. Why does God do this? Well, it's a reminder to all of us that all kings fail us, that no king is righteous. But it's also a reminder that all of us long for a righteous king. One of my favorite uh, things that I've heard lately and uh, is, is someone who said, well, you know, with all the craziness going on, you know, the, the racial tensions, the coronavirus, with all that going on, you know, at least it's not an election year. <laughs> and, and it is an election year, right? It's like, it's just like it could not get more chaotic, more tense. And each candidate that we see It's put forward as a savior for our country, a king who can make all things right again, a king who can end the coronavirus, a king who can end the slavery to mass, a king who can end racial tensions, a king who can rebuild the economy, a king who can save the world from global warming. And yet Esther 1 reminds us, and all human history proves to us that there is no righteous king, no righteous emperor, no righteous president, except for one. There is only one righteous king. You see, this is a king who has dominion not only over the Middle East. He has dominion over all of creation, over every person, over every prince, over every star. This king, unlike King Xerxes, did not come to boast of his glory, but came hiding his glory. He was born in a barn in the likeness of men. He sweated, he smelled, he got dirty, he was a carpenter. This king, like King Xerxes, experienced rejection, but not for just reasons, but for unjust reasons. This king experienced rejection from religious leaders and from lay people and from human politicians for doing the right thing, and they were jealous of him. This king, this perfect righteous king, was betrayed and beaten and spat on. And how did this king respond to the rejection of those whom he created? Was it by pouring out his vengeance upon them? Certainly he could do that. But this great king did not pour his vengeance out upon his people, but took the vengeance they deserved upon himself. He came to rescue us from the wages of our sin, to take our sin on him, to pay for sin, and to endure the vengeance of God we deserve upon the cross. We have a great king who has risen and is alive and will never die again. We have a king who is at work in the world through his Holy Spirit, through his people. We have a king who's preparing a place for us in all eternity, a king who is building a kingdom where there will be no more egos, no more marriage problems, no more sexism, no more viruses, and no more mass. A king who is building a kingdom where grandpas never die. A kingdom where back pain never cripples us. A kingdom where grieving grieving never even enters us. This king, our great king, has gone into a far country to prepare a place for us to dwell. He will set all things right again. And that will be the end of the story. The end of a story that will never, ever end. All of us long for a king. All of us long for a righteous king to set things right again. Do you know Jesus the king? He is the most wonderful king. Now, don't get me wrong. We should vote in the election. 
We should support our, our political leaders, our governing officials. But when your earthly kings fail you, and they will, remember we have a greater king who has authority over all things, who is putting all things right and fulfilling all of his promises. Let me end with this. Um, last night I was sitting at the dinner table with my family and, uh, and, and I was asking my kids, I said, hey, do you know what series we're starting tomorrow? And they said, the book of Esther. I'm like, yeah, good. Uh, do you know anything about the book of Esther? And one of my kids said, yeah, in the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. I'm like, that's right, good, good. And we continue to talk about it. And then I said, hey, do you know who the main character is in the book of Esther? And uh, I, I'm curious if I asked you, don't say it out loud, but if I say, who's the main character in Esther, what would you say? You'd probably say, well, Dan, the name of the book is Esther, right? So uh, the main character of the book is Esther, they said. No, Esther's not the main character of the book. Um, is Mordecai the main character of the book? The uncle? No, he's not the main character either. What about the king? Is the king the main character of the book? No, King Xerxes is not the main character of the book. Who could be the main character of the book of Esther? Could it be the one who's never even mentioned in the book of Esther? Could God be the main character of Esther? As we walk through the book of Esther, what will be obvious to all of us is that God is the main character in the book of Esther. God is the main hero in the book of Esther, even though God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. God is always at work in the chaos, even when we think he is absent, even when, we, when he seems silent, even if he is not mentioned. God is at work in the chaos, fulfilling his promises to his people that he made to Abraham at the beginning of the story. Because we are in the middle of a story and headed to that glorious, happy ending of the story that will never end. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that whether we believe in you or not, whether we remember you or not, whether we think of you or not, you are still at work. That, 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 that our understanding doesn't limit your capacity or abilities to work powerfully for your people. And so, God, in the chaos of the day-to-day -day, that, that comes our way, Lord, in the chaos of our city and our country, help us to rest knowing that you are our good king, bringing your kingdom, and that we can rest secure in you no matter what is happening, no matter what the storms are. You are our rock and our foundation. Help us to that, and we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.